Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. So I was accused of multiple rape and sexual assault. At the time, it was three counts. By the time that the trial came around, it had risen to 13. Now, a student who was falsely accused of rape is considering suing the police due to the lack of evidence. Back then, how people were responding to you and behaving towards you, do you feel that there was a change because you were now accused of these horrific sexual offences? The place that I used to work was the one place that then I suddenly felt like I got treated differently, but only on the basis that I was very honest with them from the start of the situation that was going on. And then I was suspended. Um, from work, having been charged. And it, it, it sounds really sad, but it did come across my mind of that you have no control in this situation, so I could just end it for everyone here. Like, there's so much hurt and so much pain that's happening. You know, you, you that's why you think about suicide, that's why you think about just pleading guilty and kind of giving in. Welcome to the Second Chance Podcast. I'm Raphael Rowe, your host. This show centres around the question of who deserves a second chance, who has the power to grant it and what it means. Our guests come from diverse backgrounds and experiences, including those who have received second chances and those who some might feel are undeserving. We'll also be looking at how a person's journey can lead them to a second chance. The collapsed trial of Liam Allen reveals a widespread problem in the legal system, which criminal defence lawyers have been warning about for some time. Liam was accused of rape and sexual assault, but his defence was that any sexual contact between himself and his former girlfriend was consensual. The prosecution's case relied heavily on the ex-girlfriend's account, which is a common situation in sexual assault allegations that often occur in private settings without any independent witnesses. 
It took two years from Liam's arrest for his trial to proceed to the Crown Court. Prior to the trial, his lawyers had repeatedly asked the prosecution to disclose texts and social media messages between Liam and his ex-girlfriend from her phone. Despite clear guidelines on disclosure, the officer in charge of the case failed to hand over this potentially useful information to the defence team. It wasn't until the trial started that this material was brought to the attention of the prosecuting barrister, who ordered it to be handed over immediately. The messages cleared Liam of all charges. His ex-girlfriend and accuser had messaged him asking for sexual contact and spoke of a desire for violent sex and rape fantasies. In other messages to friends, she stated that no crime had been committed. To their credit, the Crown dropped the case as soon as they became aware of this material. It also made a public statement acknowledging a very serious miscarriage of justice had only narrowly been avoided. Liam shared with me his side of the story. This is an exceptional case and is by no means a negative message to victims of sexual crimes. It's the opposite and a message of hope that justice can prevail for those in search of the truth, whether you have been wrongly accused or fear not being believed. You can also listen to my interview with Liam on my audiobook, You Are Accused, available on Audible. Click the link in the description or search for You Are Accused by Raphael Rowe to get your copy. Let's start then, and, and I'll answer a number. I've got, you know, based on what I've read and what I've heard, and I've listened to some of your interviews uh, uh, back in 17, 18, and, and recently. I know you've got a campaign, but I'll run through a few things that at least kind of structures what I want to talk about. And I suppose the best place to start is how you yourself found yourself being wrongly accused of a crime. I mean, how did it come about in the first place that you were accused of some serious offences? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's still even, uh, with five, six years on, and it's still even surreal to, to think about now. And to be honest, I don't really know how I found myself in that situation. I ultimately dated the wrong person at the wrong time and sort of found myself on the end of somebody else's... I don't even know how to describe it, really, in, in terms of what it was on their end. But, I mean, I was arrested 31st of January 2016 uh, while I was at home, having had no contact with an with an ex-partner for, for months. And um, having been arrested in a, a, a bit of a, a weird sort of standoff with the police, with not really them explaining kind of why they were there, ultimately got into the police car and was told, um, you've been accused of, of X, Y, and Z. And I just, even now I still kind of, it's all quite vivid in in terms of sitting in the car, hearing it for the first time and thinking, it's a, it's a cruel joke. It's got to be a cruel joke or my university is doing something because I'm doing criminology. So this is all like an experience thing. And, and you, you create these mad scenarios in your head, but all of them are less mad than it being real. I guess maybe it's a comfort thing. Maybe it's, it's any number of things, but I still couldn't tell you how I ended up in that situation. You still, I just can't fathom that somebody would think to make something like that up and not just make it up, but take it to such extremes 
that are like soul destroying you know categorically came out of the went out of their way to just destroy somebody in, in all forms of of the word really mentally in terms of career everything really it, it all goes once that accusation kicks in so yeah I, I just sat in a police car for half an hour as we drove to some uh, to Bromley South Police Station and I remember sitting in the cell and, and trying to like answer the question that you kind of just asked really of like how how did you get here how how are you in this position what did you do that you know kind of cause somebody to be this malicious it it's worse because you, you're just like I, I, there isn't anything like there's no reason for this to have happened it's just happening and I think that made it so much harder because you can't really you can't understand how you're in it but you also don't really know what to do it causes way more confusion and anxiety overall so just just rolling back a little bit you were how old were you at the time you were at university studying criminology and you were in a relationship with a girl for for how long but so this my relationship was before i started university and it ended before i started university and so we were together for just over a year and then yeah like about four or five months of no no contact, no nothing. You know, we ended mutually. It was very anticlimactic because, you know, like there, there was no real reason. It was just that we weren't really getting on in the relationship. Nothing was really kind of working. And so we both kind of came to a mature decision of we're just not really making each other happy. And when you come to an ending like that and you kind of, I guess, swallow that as hard as that is to take sometimes there was no reason for us to kind of stay in contact really or anything like that. We just both kind of got to a stage of wanting to move on, or at least that's kind of what I thought. And so when I went to uni, it was like a good chance to, to just knuckle down, get into things and, and really start into a, a completely new chapter. And then, yeah, I, about four months in, I was, I was, I was 19. So yeah, we're talking six years ago. Jeez. And uh, I, I thought I was quite mature for my age. I think this really humbled that, sense of the work so I was very naive in like beliefs and and how things worked and I was very trusting and I was very just stereotypical like I don't know I, what I had the right way to describe it but I, I was very much I believed in people I was very much like people oriented and that you know good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people and that's just the way the world works and if a bad thing happens you move on and um yeah, I, this this completely just rocked my world. It was a it's a whole new light on what people were capable of, kind of how you could just find yourself in a position like that, and how easy it was to just you know go from law abiding citizen to to monster in the eyes of a lot of people when they kind of first hear these types of things, and how quickly you can be villainized without any evidence, without it being true, without you know just from somebody's word, and I think it just. It took a little while to kind of grasp. I think part of that was just growing up. It was at such a big developmental kind of stage of uni on its own as a developmental kind of process, I guess. But even just generally at that age, it still was hard to comprehend what was going on. Um, And I didn't have any real like life experience of anyone going through this or anyone that I knew at the time going through this. And then what you actually find is, you know, there's quite a few people that you then speak to who know somebody or, or heard something about this happening to people and and you just find yourself in this whole new world that 
exists without you realising. It's like invisible. And this whole new world started when you were in the back of the police car when the police were telling you what you were being accused of. What were you accused of? So I was accused of multiple rape and sexual assault. At the time, it was three counts. By the time that the trial came around, it had risen to 13 over the course of two years of, of like the process. So from the day I was arrested to, to trial date was about two years. Do you know what? I, I became fully, fully aware of this world once everything was dropped after the trial. I became partly aware of the world maybe four or five months in because, like I said, at the, in the beginning, I was very much like, like, okay, you know, somebody said something. Everyone who knows me, everyone who knows who knew us, anyone who saw any interactions would know that this was so far from the truth. You're talking about people who were familiar with you and your ex-partner and your relationship yeah close friends and family like people that had seen us in the relationship you know like it wasn't you know people would have seen you over a year and a half you speak to anybody that saw us or or anything nobody would have said that there was even any kind of shred of of that being even potentially true and that was quite comforting that friends knew that but the difficult part was that that the police weren't speaking to anyone they weren't like interviewing people of like okay your observations what like they weren't getting like a holistic perspective they were just okay the accusation's been made how do we get this through to court and that's kind of it felt very early on that that was the goal and that's what i mean by like after four or five months it felt like that's when you become a bit more awake to it or that you find yourself in this or partially find yourself in this new world of innocent people are just kind of sitting there and it happens so quickly. And I didn't really want to talk to anyone about it in particular. I told friends and family and I told them that it was going on, but it never really went further than like shallow kind of details because I just, the more you spoke about it, the more it made it real. And I was really adamant that because it was so false that I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to make it impact more than it already has. And And so part of that was just kind of, getting along with it and, and doing, you know, what I was asked to be done and, and handing over whatever I was asked to hand over and blah, blah, blah. But ultimately not, that also meant not really building a defence because, again, it was that naivety of, well, the, the police are going to investigate this and I don't need to build a defence because everything will show that this is just not true and, and what you find is that no one's actually looking. But there's not. That, that leads on to my next question, actually, because you, you, you are accused and now you're charged, but you're not... Um, you're not placed in custody because, as you say, you were released on bail. So how did you, in the period between being charged and going to trial, prepare your defence? You know, because as I understand it, it's it's one of those cases where it's your word against the um, accuser's word. At, at this point, it would have been the victim's word against your word. So how do you how do you prepare a defence against that? We sat down with the with my solicitors and we kind of went through all sorts of things, pictures, text. We we tried to look for text messages. There weren't any on my phone because I'd gotten I I I, I deleted them. Or I I'd got a new phone. I can't remember which one it was at, at the time, and I'd handed over my phone and and they said that they couldn't find any you know text messages on there. And so that on its own, if we if I hadn't done that, you know then we would have been found innocent quite early on because I would have been able to say to the police, hey, look at all these text messages. Or at the very least, 
we wouldn't have been relying on disclosure for the police to kind of send those across from her phone. And so we we then had to go through things like character witnesses, people that had seen us in the relationship and, and were able to give like insights and, and go from there. I contacted ex-girlfriends that I hadn't spoken to for, for for years and it was horrible and it was I was really keen to try and find a balance of not involving people that didn't need to be involved because it was already quite it's, it's a tough situation it's a horrible situation for anyone even just to to try and talk about because ultimately on the stand what you're going to have to ask ex-girlfriends to do is talk about your sex lives and uh, and how I treated them you know in, in relationships and and the more personal it goes, the harder it is for them because it's, you know, you're in a room with full of strangers and being asked questions, like really personal questions that you, you don't really want to share with the rest of the world. You just kind of want to talk to. But ultimately, I just kind of left it as I'd speak to people that, you know, I'd had relations with. I'd speak to friends and, and, and would make it their choice if they didn't, you know, if they turn around and said to me, look, I really just don't want any part in this, then then absolutely like that's just what it is. But I also didn't want to start making decisions for people without even speaking to them about kind of what was going on. And, and ultimately as hard as it is, you, you do have to have that honest conversation with these people of like, this is what's going on. It's worth, you knowing in case maybe they do get brought in somehow of, of potentially the police go, okay, we're going to start talking to your ex-girlfriends ourselves to see if there's anything there. And, and so it's better to, it comes from me and, and it's quite a, a soft conversation rather than the police kind of going in all guns blazing of did this happen and, and blah, blah, blah. So that was one of the first kind of ports of call. And then, yeah, like I said, we just went through photos. We went through, a lot of it was going through the statement that was made. There were so many changes. I think three statements all in all were made. Or maybe there were there were two. And, and when I was arrested, we were given this like really vague piece of paper that, that wasn't particularly helpful in terms of like detailing what, what had been said and, and being able to kind of talk to that. So we went through really stereotypical in, in the statements of like, truth truth lie and, and so what we do is underline what was the truth and at what point in the statement it changed into a lie and what parts of it were like basically made up and what parts of it were true and then what we would do is then talk in my statement and, and explain in my statement from from the defense statement that we made that this is basically how the, the series of events went versus what she was saying and saying up to this point this is true but what she says here is not factual what what happened here was and then go into like the more specifics of 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 how it went out and even that on its own was just it's horrible again it's just it's just not a nice conversation to have where your whole private it, things that happen behind a closed door between two people like and then all of a sudden you're kind of finding yourself in a defensive way particularly it was was horrible like defending yourself by explaining what had happened and and trying to explain that you're not this monster that's on this bit of paper that that's not it's not a real person it's just made up it didn't feel real still you know I'd been charged and I said to my friends that it felt like that was the way that it was going because it took so long for everything and nobody seemed to have any information or what was happening and and the whole investigation you could even feel just from an outside like although I was inside like obviously I wasn't in the investigation or doing any even from the outside looking in, it just felt like it was just prone to blunders. It just didn't seem like anybody had any kind of idea of what they should be doing, how things were supposed to go. You know, there was a point where I was supposed to either be rebailed or a decision was supposed to be made about whether or not I was going to be charged. And that was like five months after being arrested. And my family and I 
all stood outside the police station for nearly three hours waiting for this like officer in charge to, to turn up only for the desk to then turn around and go, well, we can't get hold of him. We don't know where he is. So I guess you just need to go home for now. I, I can't imagine. Well, I can because I've been in that situation and I think you articulate the challenges that you faced and your legal team faced as you went through the statement, sort of unpicking what was truth and what was lies. And I've no doubt that even though those in your corner defending you were trying to put together the best defence they possibly could, there's always this lingering kind of, OK, that's what she says, you're saying it's a lie. And, and, and even though they never quite um, articulate that they do or don't believe what you're saying. So the challenges of challenging the accusation against you is one thing. Tell me about when you reflect on how your immediate family and friends were reacting to these accusations. I know you said that, you know, people who knew you, relationships that you had in the past, you were able to establish, you know, the kind of person you were, the kind of relationship you had with your accuser. But when you reflect on back then how people were responding to you and behaving towards you, do you feel that there was a change because you were now accused of these horrific sexual offences? I think I was quite lucky in the sense of like close friends and family didn't really. I think a lot of it is actually how I felt after it. Like I felt quite just personally tainted. Uh, there's that paranoia of me. Nobody ever treated me in a way that would make me feel like they believed it was true. Nobody ever gave me any real doubts. But in my mind, I would then convince myself that well, somebody must be thinking no smoke without fire. Somebody must be thinking this. And you become quite toxic to yourself because especially when you get those like 10, 15 minutes alone where nobody's talking to you and you're kind of sitting in your room or, or sitting down and just have your, your thoughts to yourself for a bit. And you start then thinking, what if this person didn't mean, you know, no, no, like I, I completely believe you. What if actually they're sitting there thinking, the the complete opposite and they're just trying to like you know nullify the situation and so that they can just get away and and even now i mean i guess people obviously wouldn't say um if it was the opposite but even now people are like no there was just never a, it was never in doubt it was just never even a question it it was more of a question of when is the truth finally going to come out but i didn't feel i didn't feel treated any differently i think my the, the place that i used to work was the one place that then I suddenly felt like I got treated differently, but only on the basis that I was very honest with them from the start of the situation that was going on. And then I was suspended from work, having been charged. And I was allowed to work after I was charged for a few days. And then it was after that, that there was a message that was filtered down initially that, okay, because you've been charged, you know, you, you're now suspended. And I was suspended with pay initially. And then after like maybe two months, I got a message saying, okay, now it's been long enough. We're not going to pay you till November, which is when the trial was. You're now going to be suspended without pay. And it was at that point where I just felt, okay, you're 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 nudging me out. You're trying to like dissociate yourselves before anything's even kind of come about. And I really fought back on it because I'd been working there for a couple of years and, and I'd been working there while this was going on. And so if I was, if I'm now suddenly a flight risk, why was I not a flight risk? You know, then what? what what's really changed because even after being charged and even after being quite honest about being charged there was still nothing then that they did in terms of like disciplinary action or, or any indication that that was going to be the case so 
it just sort of changed quite drastically. And they did, after after fighting it for about a week or two weeks, they then came back and said, okay, actually, no, we've made the wrong decision. Can you come back to, like, we'd like to have you back at work, basically. And, and that was, I think, the only real moment where I was like, okay, people suddenly just completely diso- dissociated yourself, dissociating themselves from you just based on the risk that it could be true. All of them would say like, oh, there's, you know, we definitely don't believe it, but it then felt like it was followed up with, but just in case, see you later. Just before we talk a little bit about what happened at the trial, in the build-up to the trial, were there fears that you would be convicted? You knew you were innocent, that the accuser knew you were innocent, you were, you know, building the best defence that you could, but did you fear being convicted of a crime you didn't commit? Yeah, absolutely. I, in all honesty, I think if the text messages didn't come out as strong as our case was, my mind is still convinced that if it was my word against hers, people would err on the side of caution and go with, okay, convict. Even if they had doubts, I think it would have been a case of the opposite. I think the jury would have had to have been beyond reasonable doubt. And it's difficult to know what would have come out from cross-examination. Like I think... There was a lot in the interview. There was a lot in the statements. There was a lot just generally before the text messages that weren't adding up. And so maybe the cross-examination would have demonstrated that properly to the jury. But it's also, I kind of have to understand that it's an emotive situation. I wasn't just accused of like a one-off instance of it. I was accused of 13 counts. And so I feel like the I just my mind always thought that if it was just word against word, that the jury, no matter what had been said in there, unless she confessed all of a sudden in the middle of a courtroom, which probably was, wasn't going to happen, that they would, for fear of being wrong the other way, that it felt like the best thing for them to do would just be to go guilty. And if they were wrong, then, you know, they were wrong, they would never really know. Well, but, was, was there ever an occasion where your defence team was saying to you it might be you know, in your interest in terms of getting a lesser sentence if you did consider pleading guilty? No, my my barrister was really good, to be honest. And so, like, the solicitor firm that, that I used in, in the end was one that I'd done work experience for. So we had, like, a relationship in terms of knowing each other and, and being quite friendly with each other already. And it was weird going to them, but I, it was the best possible decision I could have made because... I was presented with the option of, okay, well, you can plead guilty. This is the lesser sentence. And it it sounds really sad, but it did come across my mind of that you have no control in this situation. So I could just end it for everyone here. Like there's so much hurt and so much pain that's happening. You know, you, you that's why you think about suicide. That's why you think about just pleading guilty and kind of giving in. Maybe it's easier to kind of take if, if I plead guilty rather than kill myself. And the thought runs through your head of like, that's the only way I can think of getting control of this situation again. But also ultimately, when I was doing my guilty, not guilty, please, that was seven, eight months before the trial even was supposed to begin. It was a really long time. And so you kind of then just think, if I don't do something responsible and kind of think about this rationally, am I putting people through eight months of pain if I think the likelihood is I'm still going to be convicted, even if I'm innocent? Do I think people are going to listen? No, because, you, you, you know, there's so much talk about men doing X, Y, and Z, and, and there's a lot of it that does happen. And so people are more inclined to believe rather than disbelieve when somebody says that they've been raped. And 
I guess it's it's harder actually now to imagine why somebody would lie about it than it is that somebody would would commit the act. I think that's just kind of where we're at as a society. And so yeah, I, when they offered the the lesser sentence and everything like that, it was never the lesser sentence that made it not appealing, but made it a consideration. It was just the fact of it's an option just to end it now for everybody and and give people a chance to start moving on from it. You didn't take that offer and your case went to trial. Tell me a little bit about what happened at the trial because it was only, I don't know how long it was scheduled for, but it lasted three days. Did your accuser give evidence? And just tell me a little bit about what happened at the trial. Yeah, so we, first day, so it lasted three days. It was supposed to last a week. Probably would have lasted longer because of the delays of with the disclosure and if the trial was to go ahead but first day was delayed. Then it was a case trying to get a jury sworn in. Then Tuesday we got the jury sworn in, and we found out about this. We we on Monday we'd pressed a little bit more because in the disclosure pack there were suddenly these text messages that were included. It's like a hundred text messages. It wasn't much between my ex and one of her friends, and in it one of the text messages said it wasn't against my will or anything. When and this series of text messages was supposed to be describing the first time she was claiming it was rape and you could see in that conversation alone that it started off as a a really small lie that then was impossible to go back on and there were attempts to go back in that conversation and then eventually you had to she had no choice but to just go with it like there was no because the reaction of other people when you say that is is quite unpredictable. Some people might just kind of be quite calm and, and just reassuring and like everything's okay now, you know, you can move on. Whereas others' reaction would be like, you have to take action, you have to do something about this. Or if it feels like they're not realising it was rape and you think it's rape, then you feel like the onus is on you to make them aware that, no, this is definitely wrong, this is definitely rape. And so the way it was being spoken about by her was, like I said, it was just, it was sort of mini white lies that that then made it seem as if it was rape in, in itself and then it went full-fledged no it was definitely rape and it was this and it was that and it and it escalated completely to what was initially said anyway and it was just crazy seeing this little white lie snowball and our defense team straight away asked where did these text messages come from like it doesn't doesn't make sense as to why you know the police had said there was nothing to disclose and then two weeks before the trial or a week before the trial these text messages were randomly bundled in as if nobody would notice and then it came out in on tuesday in the courtroom that the police officer in charge had actually downloaded text messages from her phone and he said it's only a couple of thousand text messages like this there's nothing important in them they're, they're all irrelevant and the prosecution counsel was new to the case so he hadn't seen anything about this either and so he said well that's it's not for you to decide, it's actually for the lawyers to decide whether or not there's something relevant in there for the prosecution or the defence. What then ended up happening was when we sort of like asked around it a little bit more, we were told, okay, there's a disk download of, of everything on her phone. And um, it wasn't just a couple of thousand text messages. It was 60,000 text messages. It was 2,148 pages of text messages with with messages about 30 messages per page that were downloaded from her phone some of them were deleted contacts so like my 
name was deleted, but my number was on there. So then there was all these exchanges between us that you could see that had never been seen before or the police had claimed that nobody had looked at before. There were all these text messages between her and her friends and kind of those interactions and what was being said about rape and uh, uh, the, generally the topic of rape, but also her experience and her experience of sex and, and, and all of those types of things all throughout the time of being together and shortly after. What we then, once we started to kind of delve into those messages and look further into them, on the Wednesday, or the, I think it was a Thursday, we came back and we started, like my defence barrister started reading some of the messages out. And even the prosecution barrister was like, whoa, why has this not been given before? Why has this not been looked at? This case should never be here based on that. And it's difficult because... Ultimately, you can never share those text messages with anybody because they weren't read out in front of a jury. The jury was just told in light of new evidence, the prosecution is going to review their case and blah, blah, blah. And a few examples were kind of read out to a judge, but not enough that really you could then start sharing with people of like, these are all the text messages that we saw and this was what was said. And so, again, even then, it's quite difficult to say to people, yeah, there's so much evidence there. And they're like, okay, but where is it? And you're like, well, it can never be shown to anyone now because that's the way things are. Yeah, the prosecution then took two weeks to to decide whether or not they were going to basically redo the trial in seven months' time. I think it would have been July or, or August or something the following year, or if they were going to drop it completely. And they dropped it completely. I mean, if it went to court, it, they would have lost. Like, based on just those messages alone, the second we put them in front of the jury, it would have just there would have been no need to carry on. And so we were kind of confident that that was going to happen. But also you are just sort of like, okay, it's gone this far. We were confident that I wasn't going to be charged. We were confident that I wasn't going to, you know, go like actually even get to the trial that, you know, eventually they'd then look at it again and go, we've made a terrible mistake. So, yeah, once we kind of went back into it, it all became very formal. And I was told a couple of days before it was formally announced in, in, a, in a courtroom. And then on the day of coming back to for it to be formally announced, there's then all the media there's then the times reporter that kind of started everything that then snowballed into bbc channel four you know and and became the story that it was pretty much overnight to be honest and it did become a, a very big story not least because you liam had been wrongly accused of such serious offenses but also as your, I think it was the prosecution barrister that I read who sort of said it was sheer police in incompetence. He, he went on BBC talking about, he asked the police if there was any disclosure. They said, as you just said, no. And it was for the defence and for the prosecution to have a look. Did the accuser actually, I read something that the accuser actually gave evidence. So they repeated the allegations against you at the beginning of the trial and was this at a point where you had access to all this, all these messages that were obviously contradicting what I, I, I expect she was saying in the doc? Yeah, so her statements were read out and read back to her and, and it was like her agreeing with certain things or, or repeating certain things. And, and she had started to give evidence in court whilst we were in possession of these messages because... What we were initially given was 24 hours to prove or, or or I think it was extract the messages that could be put in front of the jury and we would be allowed to use them as evidence in the trial. Now, going through 60,000 text messages in, in a night is, is awful. But 
we then were granted another 24 hours once we started reading some of the examples that we found out to be able to get them in a format for the jury because it was so important that they saw them. And so what would happen was the trial was told to just carry on as normal because ultimately these weren't needed until her cross-examination so that we would do a cross-examination for her the next day. And once we kind of got there, she'd started reading some of her statements. She'd, she'd done, like, the ABE interview had been played to the jury and, and at this point, I can't even explain, I was I was furious, I literally shaking with anger that I was being made to sit through that part knowing what we knew and not being able to shout it from the rooftops yet. We were patient, we waited our kind of turn in terms of what was going to happen and by the time we are supposed to cross-examine her, we then presented it to the prosecution and to the judge and just said, look, this this can't carry on. Like, it's impossible to get all of these messages in a format that's coherent for the jury. We then had to try and, like, map together messages because the way that it was downloaded and because my, my contact was deleted from her phone trying to show those messages in a chronological order was like a real puzzle at times and you had to try and work out what matched up with what and so on and so forth so it was actually quite difficult because a lot of the messages where it was done based on time it sort of like merged conversations in between as they were happening so if she was messaging somebody at the same time i think it was then that conversation would be plonked in the middle of our conversation and so it was difficult to kind of format that and print out for a jury and put it in a, a good enough format for them to be able to follow and so yeah ultimately it was just it was dropped having had her have like the first half a day on on wednesday give some form of evidence and then court was just adjourned and, and thursday everyone was told to leave i'm interrupting this midpoint to let you know this podcast is also available for viewing on our youtube channel at second chance podcast So if you want to enhance your listening experience with the visuals, check it out. I also wanted to ask for your support to help me grow the podcast. All you have to do is click on the subscribe and like button wherever you listen to the Second Chance podcast. If you can spare another few minutes to comment and rate the show, that'd be brilliant. By doing so, you'll be assisting us in bringing in more guests and creating more content for the show. It only takes a second, but it makes all the difference. Thank you. So the, the the charges, all the charges against you were dropped. You were no longer the the suspect in this case. You were no longer, you know, everybody realised that that you were innocent. But it was only because, um, by chance, the disclosure of all these text messages um, were were disclosed. What do you think about that? What do you think about the fact that? Um, you know, you wouldn't have had to go through this ordeal had the police, you know, looked at this material, had the prosecution looked at this material during the period that you were waiting to go for trial, or if they had, at least the police, the, the, the officer in charge of disclosure. I mean, how do you feel about the fact that your ordeal would never have lasted so long had they not only acted on that material, but disclosed it to your defence? It's really hard because... We had this conversation as well of like a lot of people said, well, even if you were convicted and it didn't come out in the trial, somewhere somebody would have found it and then you'd have been released. And that's not actually true. Trying to get disclosure to unused material after a conviction's happened is near impossible because 
ultimately it's seen as a fishing expedition and, and that you shouldn't have access to it. And, you know, the judgment's been made, move on with it and get over. But what really kind of happened was, although it was police mistakes in the beginning that caused me to be in the, that position in the first place, it was actually just a police mistake for adding that in, really, because they, there wasn't... They thought it was helping their case. And what it did was just kind of expose the fact that they hadn't done their job properly in the first place. And they obviously hadn't read the messages fully or even comprehended what, you know, saying it wasn't against my will or anything really kind of does to a case when somebody's claiming that it's rape. And, um, yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm dead certain, I really am, that jury members, we said this, there were three jury members before anything had even happened, before any evidence had been read out, before anything, that had made up their mind. They they had decided, and my friends said I was really, I was being silly, like, that's not possible. And then basically, as of, uh, I think literally the next day, I said, if you, if you look at what their, like, kind of facial expression is, the way that they're doing things, the way that they're interacting, they've made up their mind. And my friends the next day went, oh my God, like, I can't believe it. They haven't taken their eyes off you. The way that they're looking at you, everything is horrible. They had decided I was guilty before anything had happened. And I think when three people from the officer start that way, that is just going to act as poison for the rest of the jury. Because if from the get-go, they were already willing to kind of start communicating when they were able to start talking, like, this is... He's definitely guilty, got to be guilty, has to be guilty. Before even hearing anything or even being able to make up their own mind, then I would have just, uh, my mindset was I would have just been convicted. But it would be because they've made up their their mind before anything's even happened. So, you know, even with the evidence, it was probably a risk. Because Did you find anything within those messages to explain why your accuser was falsely accusing you. Was there anything in there that indicated, you know, whether she was scorned by the fact that, you know, you didn't do this or do that? Did, did At that point, was there any new information that helped you understand why she was putting you through this ordeal? There wasn't really any new information that came from the messages. There was new information that was kind of like developing in terms of conversations that she'd had with, with my friends and, and kind of, what what she wanted and, and kind of what she didn't get ultimately outside of our relationship and, and how that then came back to me because uh, like uh, uh, quite shortly after we had broken up, she had asked to meet up and I said no. And so that was quite a big part in it of like, maybe it was then just a case of if, if she can't have me, no one can, you know, like it, it, we had so many theories and so many, I don't know, things that we thought about. But ultimately, it kind of just came down to I could torture myself about the reason why till I'm blue in the face. Even if she came up to me now and said to me, this is the reason. There's so much distrust that uh, of like what she says that I'd never believe the reason. So I'm never really going to gonna know. And when you stop torturing yourself about why, you start then being able to really kind of just accept that, that it happened, that somebody's done this and, and it's a horrible process to go through. But you can't just kind of sit and, I guess, dwell on on trying to work out why somebody would do this. But no, there was no. We had theories, but they, that's all and they were. They were just. Did anything happen to her? Was she at any point prosecuted for perverting the course of justice or anything like that? No, I mean, 
No, nothing, not that I know of. I mean, it'd be difficult to kind of find out what, even if a conversation was had or anything like that, I think. But from what I know, from I think naturally because there was so much media attention around it, if there were any consequences that came from it, I'm sure that the media would have picked up on it very quickly. There, there weren't any. There, there weren't any consequences for anybody that was involved in the case. To be honest, the officer in charge didn't have any consequences. Like no, there was nothing for anyone. It was just, oh, it's happened. We're really sorry. We'll do better. And you know, like I said, we're six years on now from when I was first arrested, and nothing's actually changed. Like things are still quite bad. I think there's a report by the Law Society that disclosure is actually getting worse in the last five years than it was than it has been getting better. But that's the point, isn't it? Because one of the statements made by the Crown Prosecution Service barrister in, in this case, he accused the police, and I quote, of sheer incompetence. Um, is that your takeaway from the police's failure to disclose this material that would have ended this the moment you had access to it? So is your takeaway that they were incompetent or do you think there was a malicious element? I I, th- I think nobody's that incompetent. I think it was a malicious element. And it may not necessarily have been malicious in the sense of we want to convict you and, and you know, you're the scum of the earth kind of thing. I think even on its you know there's so many different avenues of it where it could be completely different it could just be a case of it's nothing personal but our job is to convict criminals and you've been accused and so our goal is to convict you our job isn't to kind of work out the facts of the case and work out whether or not this is true we just need to put you in prison regardless of of what we of what the truth is and then in the same breath it's also a case of and maybe the malicious part was well who cares what's in the messages let's just cut corners because it's easier for me and whatever happens to you happens to you and it's not really my problem and so it's hard to to believe any possibility didn't have some form of malicious factor to it that may not necessarily have been intentional or personal to me but just more generally of you're just another person going through the system why should I care what happens to you what what do you think you know still talking about the disclosure for a moment what 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 lessons do you think have been learned you mentioned that you know there was a report by the law society recently that suggests disclosure a big issue in miscarriage of justice cases um and, and still is and always will be what what lessons do you think the public have learned from your case because it did generate a lot of media interest around not just the disclosure of evidence, but a review of a number of other rape cases that may have been, you know, mistried simply because of this non-disclosure. So what lessons do you think have been learned, if any, Liam? I I don't think there have been any. I actually think, worst of all, what (laughs) what people were taught was just to delete messages from your phone and you won't get them back. Like, I just... We speak to so many people as part of the charity, the defendant that we that my partner and I, Hannah, set up to 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 provide emotional support and practical support for people that are accused of crimes. And and a lot of people that we speak to, you know, we've spoken to quite a few cases to be honest that get to the right to the final stage, get to trial, and then all of a sudden a massive disclosure failure collapses the case. And actually, if they had that disclosure in the beginning, everything would have been different. And because they suddenly got access to the disclosure, it was a not guilty um, verdict rather than a guilty verdict or the case collapsed entirely and the prosecution withdrew their case and withdrew the charges. And so I don't think anything's changed. I just think nobody's reporting on it just as much. I think there's there's a report that's come out by a criminal watchdog last week that 90% of cases in southeast 
or, or in South London don't meet the, the guidance for disclosure. Uh, I think it's 53% don't meet it at all and 28% or 38% just partially meet it. And like even 53% like not meeting it at all. That's so many cases. So many. And like nobody's doing anything. Like you get reports about it and then everybody goes, oh, this is terrible. And then nothing happens. Like you don't ever hear about police officers being fired because they've had, you know, six or seven disclosure failures now where it's clearly becoming intentional or that they're not learning and so that they just don't care. And it's such a fundamental part to fair justice because if they're not looking through that evidence, that ultimately means they're harming victims' cases that have genuinely been through these experiences and do need them to actually because there'll be valuable evidence in there that will help a prosecution case i can't imagine there wouldn't be and just as equally it's, it's never going to be fair for defendants because they're not really looking at things i guess all reasonable lines of inquiry and so if you haven't done a thorough investigation every conviction every everything is just always a risk you like there's always a possibility that they've got the wrong person or that the that it's not true or, or whatever it is in any case like it's not just rape and sexual assault i think disclosure failures happen across the board but particularly in, in a word against word kind of crime it's so key to make sure you're getting that part right at least your your case when it collapsed triggered a a review of the police and the crown prosecution service did, did anything come with that yeah they dropped 60 something cases like there was a it was a review of live rape cases that were, were going on and I think it was 60, 60 cases out of 180 or something like that, or, or I, can't, I can't fully remember, were dropped. And so it just kind of gave a, an indication of like something was going seriously wrong because once all the evidence had suddenly been looked at again and, and or dis, evidence was disclosed to defence teams, suddenly the prosecution had to drop, you know, 60-odd cases for people. That can't be right. So... You know, that, that review isn't an ongoing thing. It doesn't happen all the time. So how many before that where when unnoticed? Like no nobody knew it was happening and, and nobody was disclosed the evidence and still looking to get access to the evidence. Like there's obviously so much more happening behind closed doors that even that isn't in reports because nobody knows to be looking for it really. I, I don't know if you have any insight, but when when I think about the flip side to what happened to you when you look at rape victims. There's obviously, you know, this side of it where rape victims are not being believed or they're now becoming the accused because people don't want to take their word for it. And I don't, you know, I'm not for one minute suggesting that a case like yours makes people look closer at allegations. But had the police looked closer at the allegations against you, they would have discovered this evidence and, and shown that you wasn't. What, what do you think about that? Do you have any thoughts about, you, you know, the kind of the statistics that exist out there that say a lot of um, existing rape cases are not now being prosecuted because the prosecution don't have the material to pursue those cases or um, the um, accusers are not being believed in the way that um, they would have done had cases like yours maybe not made people think more carefully about what's believed and what's not believed, if that's the right question. Yeah, I, I, it's always difficult because obviously these crimes are happening. I think the impossible part is to kind of 
determine like you see a lot of the two percent statistic which is like two percent of cases of false accusations and like it's basically gets marked as a false accusation in in those statistics if the person's convicted of accusing falsely it doesn't include so the 98 percent that are real it doesn't it, it that 98 percent includes everyone that's been found not guilty which it gives the assumption of all those people that are found not guilty must have done it still they just got away with it kind of thing and so you kind of start to to look at that in the sense of like there that that statistic doesn't make sense not everyone that's found not guilty could could have done it like that that just statistically that on its own is impossible i'm not included in that false accusation statistic despite it being one of the most reported cases because the person that accused me didn't get convicted so it's impossible to kind of like determine what that statistic ultimately is but it is really sad ultimately it is re really sad that cases are being dropped but the only thing really we can ask of a system is to look at things in as much depth as possible if there isn't any supporting evidence overall it's difficult to take something to trial because what do you present to a jury you present one word versus another and the, the rule of law is the presumption of innocence that that's the the way it, the, the law works and it's the way that it it has to work because you do need something corroborating a story or, or, or giving an indication that something may be true and so if that is the case i think the system could be doing more for the cases where it is dropping in terms of like supporting them rebuilding their life if they can't get the justice in that sense but also I think cases like mine are just make it should what it should have done is make police do a more thorough job like the, and ultimately that that will only help real victims in their kind of cases and, and, and actually kind of looking through those things. I think what happens with a lot of cases is is that things just get kind of looked at and if the investigation isn't being done thoroughly in depth or all the evidence isn't really being looked at properly, then they're deeming it as uh, a case that doesn't have any real value and that on its own would it, is wrong so ultimately i think really it, my case should just highlight that going through the evidence is key how much time was wasted by a, the police officer in charge all the other police officers that then had to kind of focus and do anything about this case for two years how much time was taken away just by my one case from all the cases where real victims did come forward and when you look at it in that perspective, actually, okay, then realistically going through things and following all reasonable lines of inquiry and dropping cases that, you know, ultimately it, it, there isn't any way of actually proving it will only mean that the cases where there is actually, you know, that the need the focus and has the evidence will result in, in convictions. That That's logically, that's just where my mind goes. I think it's impossible to convict people or even take somebody to court if it is just somebody's word against another person's word, unless the statements demonstrate that something is, you know, like let's say the defendant changes their statement seven or eight times and there's not, the statements don't match up. And, and you know what I mean? Like if that, I guess, word in that sense is coming from a really, really unreliable kind of source then because it's changed so much and the, and the story isn't, kind of making sense or adding up but if you don't have anything to corroborate what has been said 
even if it was like friendship groups saying actually yeah something was really weird the way that they were acting was actually really wrong something definitely must have kind of been going on outside of that or we were in this location at this specific time the cctv there will show me really happy at this point and then really sad at this point because we had an argument and so on and so forth and those like they sound like small things but those would all add up to just making the, the story or, or or an accusation more credible if it's impossible to do that, it's, yeah. it's, it's such an interesting point you make, actually, because as you say, the case against you was dropped, as it is in many other cases. But those cases would still fall under the statistics where some people will use it as a stick to people who don't understand how the criminal justice system works, like in cases like yours, where if the accuser, now the case has been dropped, is not prosecuted, then and and the police are not prosecuted there's nothing to sort of hold on to but in your case the police did apologize for what happened to you which is at least some indication that they got things wrong and that must be more than just the disclosure issue what what action were you able to take against the police and did you accept that apology the apology I accepted at the time and then with the reaction and everything that followed demonstrated that it wasn't particularly sincere or that it was ultimately just an apology. I did take action against the police successfully, but I can't go into detail as to kind of what the outcome of that was. That only really wrapped up middle of last year, really. So even then that just dragged out kind of the, how long the, the case itself it kind of dragged on for and, and what we'd been through. I mean, ultimately, yeah, there was some... It it did do some good in that sense, in that it was a case of just saying, like, an apology was just never enough. And it, and it, it wasn't. And I wish there was more that could be done in terms of taking action to create policies based on it or create guidances and best practices and, and make sure those best practices were followed i wish that could have been included in the case it just wasn't possible it's not it's not a position that i come from like there isn't going to be like a, a liam allen policy or law you know it's not it's not going to be a thing but something that i don't know the the point was always to try and help other people that are now going through the situation the second one i think it does to, doesn't it in the sense that your case was so high profile that it did make people realise that young men like you can end up being accused of something that you haven't done, something as serious as rape, especially in a case where it's one-on-one. And and I think, I mean, it's such a difficult one. And and, and so I think even though it hasn't got a Liam policy, as you say, Liam, I think people are slightly more cautious to accept at face value. And that does require... So the victims are, are, you you know, get their justice but also the accused that are not guilty get their justice so something has i think significantly even if it hasn't worked out legally significantly in the public domain which is sometimes more important than the legal domain um, because people then don't judge people simply because you've been accused of something and as you said at the beginning of this interview you've been monstified you you know so it doesn't matter um, what the outcome is the simple fact that you've been accused of something you didn't do has now tainted you or that's what you felt at the time even though uh, as time goes on you're exonerated or even you're convicted and you come out how has the the whole experience affected your your life and in particular 
your relationships. I know you said you, you've got a partner, you've got a child now and, and you've set up a campaign. So just tell me a little bit about how it has affected your life and your being able after this experience to develop a, a, another relationship because surely deep down there must have been some fears or maybe not, I don't know. I found it difficult more in the sense of like any kind of long-term commitment or or more so kind of trying to plan for a future. Like it, it would be really easy to just kind of say, yeah, we'll do this, yeah, we'll do that because in my mind... I don't know, relationships, it wasn't hard to get back into a relationship. It was just hard to just kind of stay in the relationship. And I probably sabotaged quite a few early on or or as things got more serious and, and kind of started to just step away and, and, and move away from that. And a lot of it was just, a lot of it was just fear. A lot of it was just kind of like save it, save everyone the kind of heartache now and and let's just call it a day now and and, and the, you know while less likely to be hurt or, or while anyone's less likely to be hurt but i i am very lucky now i do like i said i, ha- I have a partner hannah and and we have our daughter cara and we've been together for for almost three years now and it, the difference in that is that at the time that we met it was in more of a a better place overall but the time that we've been together i specifically went into therapy and and started trying to work on just being able to rebuild and and really having a a life outside of the accusation there's still two sides to my life as it is you know you have the the accused part which is we do things like this and, and we do talks and my partner and I we run the charity called the defendant that you know we do in the evenings and in our spare time and a lot of that is focused on helping other people but then you have your normal life like your day-to-day job and you're bringing up your little you know, girl yeah exactly you know like soft play at the weekends and and days out to the farm and and that normal part of life and and it was only when i started to have those normal parts of life and and became less consumed by doing i guess like the media stories and 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 talking to people at, at conferences and, and doing what i could to help in that regard it was only when I started to have bits of normal life that you realised how much you you had lost or, or had left kind of out of your life just ultimately because you think you, I don't know, you, you become consumed by it. But I always had this whole thing of like, it, I felt like I owed it to people that were currently going through it to, to just, my my whole life has to be dedicated now to that. And it, it took a little while to understand that actually, in some ways selfishly you can't really help those people if you haven't got your own life and and you're not set up to do your own thing and 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 you're not living your life because it's very hypocritical to to start saying oh yeah you should start you know you, you can rebuild you can do this don't worry things get better when actually you're not even in the position yourself to to even do like you know to, to to even have those things and and you're trying to tell people don't worry it'll get better so yeah, it, it it was tough. It took a really long time to rebuild, like a really long time. But um, ultimately, it was it, it, I don't know. It needed to take that length of time, you know. In the end, it's good to hear that you have been able to to sort of re- revisit who Liam is and Liam wants to be, and and build a relationship, have a child, and move forward. That that's great testimony, and it's admirable that you have you you know a space in your life to set up a charity and help other 
people, Liam, who who have no concept of, of, of what it's like until they find themselves like you in that situation. Just one final question from me to you. Do you accuse your accuser in any way? What do you mean, sorry? She almost ruined your life and has left a deep scar in your life, your existence. You're talking to me. I'm talking to you because of that experience. Other journalists have your work in your charity, all because you were wrongly accused of raping someone that you didn't. And you've been scarred by that experience. Do you accuse your accuser in any way of doing what she did. Uh, I, in other words, would you like to have seen your accuser prosecuted for what she did? It's really tough because we had this conversation as a family actually after it all happened and a big part of it was would anything really benefit, like would, any, would there be any benefit really if she was sent to prison? Like is that really the right action? Because ultimately if she was prosecuted that, that would be where it goes, right? And actually, the the best thing for her was that there's obviously psychologically something really wrong. That more generally, from what we then saw afterwards, the fact that we were in that situation in the first place, but also more so in the sense of like knowing things as the trial went on and seeing how things had developed in, in, in that regard, and it was really evident that maybe a big part of this was like just a, a real cry for help that there was just a big need for some sort of I don't know mental stability like some somebody to kind of give her the tools to to I don't I don't want to say be normal but not suffer in the way that she obviously was and I think unfortunately as as hard as this was to kind of digest and understand myself I think part of this accusation is just a byproduct of that uh, of mental health issues just manifesting and, and not being resolved I think something should happen I just don't know if prosecuting her would 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 have been the right thing I don't know if prosecuting her would have done anything other than put her in a, a place that would have taught her new things and 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 made her a worse person that eventually would be released and do more damage but I do also think that without any action having been taken, she now knows what she... Because ultimately it was because of her mistake in it all that unraveled the whole thing. If she deleted the message from her phone, the likelihood is she would have got what she wanted. So knowing that, actually what has really happened is this whole experience has taught her how to do it, but do it better next time. Wow. Well, I, I, I hope that the whole lesson is that she realises that what she did was was wrong and the torturer having to live with that and the therapy rather than punishment is enough to make her realise what, what she did was, was, was wrong um, in the eyes of the law at the very least. Thanks for tuning in to Second Chance Podcast. Your support is greatly appreciated quick reminder that you can find the video of this interview on our YouTube channel at Second Chance Podcast, where you can also subscribe to be notified of new episodes. Please share our episodes with your friends, family and colleagues and follow us on YouTube and your preferred podcast platform for updates on new episodes. Your feedback is crucial to the growth of our podcast. Please rate and review our episodes and let us know your thoughts in the comments section. 
You can also listen to my interview with Liam in my audiobook, You Are Accused, also available on Audible. Click the link in the description or search for You Are Accused by Raphael Rowe to get your copy. This podcast was brought to you by Second Chance Media Productions. Audio Avalanche handles audio editing. J-Row Productions created the original soundtrack. Studio Minerva designed the eye-catching cover. Social media marketing agency Scribble manages and creates our social media content. If you haven't already, please follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook and LinkedIn. Just look for Second Chance Podcast with me, Raphael Rowe. Thanks for tuning in. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.